Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back and happy new year, everybody. Happy 2024. We are kicking off the year with a bonus episode of the pod. I'm going to do a quick rundown of my outlook and then we'll do some Q&A. I got such wonderful questions from you all again on Twitter and LinkedIn. So thank you for playing. Thank you for sending your questions. Uh, Many astute questions. And we're going to tackle some of the biggest topics that I heard from many of you over and over again. But to start this off, I want to do just a very quick review of what my outlook said for 2024. The title of it was A Cycle for the Ages, saying that because this is a cycle, a business cycle that has been longer than many expected. 2023 was obviously a big surprise to many of us, uh, both economists and market pundits alike, surprised us with a lot of strength, both in GDP, economic strength, labor market strength and market strength. We posted some amazing numbers in the stock market. And that's what makes a lot of this a cycle for the ages. The difference being, it didn't end in 2023. I thought the cycle was going to end in 2023, and it did not. So it's lengthening out. We are now embarking on a new year in the same cycle, and I'm sure many more surprises to be found. The other theme that was in the outlook was wrapped in contradictions. I think we went through 2023 with a lot of contradicting evidence in the economy and in markets telling us there are things to be worried about, but there are also things to be excited about. That continues into 2024. So we've got a list of positives led by stronger than expected GDP through the end of Q3, a labor market that stayed robust earnings recession that ended in Q3, and really strong expectations for 2024 earnings. But then we've also got these nagging negatives. We've got PMIs, manufacturing PMIs that are still in contraction territory. We're awaiting what the Fed calls this necessary below-trend growth. We've got these persistent yield curve inversions, which continue to keep me up at night, sending signals that there is some impending doom. It just continues to be pushed further and further out into the future. And then this enthusiasm over rate cuts, and that's something that I'll I'll talk about in the Q&A section. But the idea that a lot of this year-end rally, a lot of the movement in rate cut expectations has been driven through the end of the year by CPI falling and by inflation coming down, which is definitely a good thing. But the idea that rate cuts got pulled forward and the market is rallying on that news may be a little misguided, may be a little complacent. So we'll talk about why that is. The last thing I'll say about the outlook is if we are nearing a more certain scenario of a soft landing. There are many more people that have jumped over to the other side of the fence and and think that a soft landing is more probable. A bet on a soft landing is a bet on the consumer. And a bet on the consumer is a bet on the labor market. So in 2024, one of the bigger things that I think is going to happen is we'll shift our focus from inflation onto the labor market. And we're actually going to get our first jobs reading, first jobs Friday in this first week of January. And I think a lot of the focus is going to be on that, not only for investors, but also for the Fed, because it's the other part of their dual mandate. And we'll talk about positioning as a powerful driver, which it continues to be with so much money sitting in money markets and in treasuries to start the year. So with that, 
let's get to the questions. Now, again, I got a ton of really, really good questions. What I tried to do again this year was sort of aggregate them into bigger groups. What are the topics that I got asked about over and over again? One of the first ones, and this is maybe an obvious topic to be asked about, but people are still questioning it, was about inflation. Will it reaccelerate in 2024? Has it truly been tamed? Are we being faked out? Or is it done? Did we solve the problem? As of this recording, the market is still expecting cuts to begin in March and for there to be six total cuts by the end of the year, which would take the Fed funds rate from 5.5% today down to 4%. Now, we have to acknowledge the fact that 4% is still pretty high compared to what we've been used to for the last 10 to 15 years. So, That move, although keeping the Fed funds rate above the recent average, is a pretty big move. Much of it, the pulling forward of those cuts, has occurred since the November CPI print, and it was further driven by the December print and the Fed's so-called pivot that occurred in its December meeting. So the reason I mention that is because according to the market, the inflation problem has been solved. But I recognize that we've made progress, happy to have seen it decelerate as quickly as it has and and quicker than most expectations. But regardless of whether it's solved from a target perspective, meaning it's nearing the Fed's target of 2%, the cumulative effects are not solved. And what I mean by that, we're talking about what's weighing on consumers. Some of the specifics, and you can find a chart about this in my outlook for 2024, the specifics of the cumulative effects of inflation— There are a number of non-negotiable items that consumers have to buy, things like food, energy, transportation, transportation to get to work, and housing, right? Those are things that just baseline needs for consumers. Now, the, the conundrum, the issue with inflation is that a lot of the measurements we talk about strip some of those things out. So we don't even think about them when we're talking about the mathematical measurement of inflation. The problem with those four categories in particular is that since the end of December in 2019, obviously we had COVID, but then inflation started to really accelerate afterwards. So if we go back to pre-pandemic through now, we've got the cumulative effects of inflation on those categories. Food is up a cumulative 25.2%. Energy is up 26.4%. Shelter is up 20.5%. Transportation is up 26.1%. Those are big numbers. We're nearing 30% cumulative effects of inflation on some of those non-negotiable categories for consumers. It's putting pressure on them. If wages kept up with that growth, really not that big of a problem. Wages have gone up. And if we're looking at a measure such as average weekly earnings, cumulative rise in average weekly earnings is 20.5%. So they're up for sure. To be sure, 20.5% is a big number, and that's a great thing for consumers and consumer spending, but they're not up as much as some of those non-negotiable categories. And then roll into that what people have dealt with with the post-pandemic spending surge, probably spending a lot on experiences, not only goods at first, but then experiences, and just money going out the door. So there's a lot to be said for those effects. And, you know, when people fear deflation, I actually think we need some deflation in the system to alleviate that pressure on consumers. Another thing to think about on the inflation front is if things are going so well, if we are nearing a soft landing, what is the rush to cut rates so soon and so much. Why do we need to cut them starting in March? Why do we need to cut them six times before the end of the year? The Fed's own projection of core PCE 
and headline PCE is 2.4% by the end of 2024. That's still above target on both measures. If that's the case, and we're still above target on inflation, cutting rates does increase the risk of inflation reaccelerating, easing monetary conditions too much that you do see a reacceleration if we didn't get our arms around it. So that's something to really watch, particularly in the first half of 2024, if rate cuts do begin. And then the other thing to watch for inflation is things like energy prices and materials prices. If there's a meaningful reacceleration in inflation, energy prices are likely to be one of the drivers. And we did see a pretty big fall in energy prices in 2023. But if they start to reaccelerate, whether for geopolitical risk or demand reasons, because everybody's gotten more optimistic, also something that that could be a risk factor. All right. Question number two. I got a lot of questions about debt and the debt loads, not necessarily all encompassing these topics. But if I put them all together, you asked about government debt. So treasury debt increasing. We've we've just hit a new record. The rolling over of corporate debt, both investment grade and high yield. Is there a maturity wall issue as rates have gone up? And then credit card debt and the ballooning credit card debt that we've seen for consumers. First of all, this is a very astute question. And it's something that I don't hear about as much since the market has rallied. And there's a lot to be said for prices rising, the S&P going up, the Nasdaq going up, the Dow hitting an all-time high. We're nearing an all-time high on the S&P. And it, it makes people stop worrying about things or at least turn a blind eye to some of the risk factors that are still out there. And debt is one of them. So they're a real concern, and I'm glad that so many of you raised it as a real concern. But nothing has happened yet in the sense that the piper has not been paid, so to speak. But we are playing with fire in a lot of those places. Treasury debt did recently hit a new record, but I want to add a caveat to this. It always hits new records. It is sort of a, a growing line upward and to the right. And that's probably how it's going to work for a while. So the fact that it hit a new record is not necessarily the concern. There's also an argument to be made for as GDP grows in an economy and as the economy grows, uh, as far as growth is concerned, you can handle more debt. So the, it's not the concerning headline that debt, treasury debt hit a new record, but the fact that treasury auctions have not been met with as strong of demand, and that the cost, the interest cost of Treasury debt has increased so much, and the projections that you see from the Congressional Budget Office are huge for the next decade or so. So handling those interest costs is something that's much more concerning and probably something that's going to be a political debate for many years to come. I recognize we are also in an election year. That is probably something that will be a hot topic for politicians. Another thing to keep in mind is that in an election year, as we go through the primary season and there's uncertainty, you do tend to see more market corrections. So there may be some volatility that's driven by that, but it's not something that I'm keeping that close of an eye on in January. I think it's something that picks up uh, as the year goes on. Moving on to corporate debt, there is a concern, of course, over corporate debt in the sense of many of these corporations issued debt at a time when interest rates were much, much lower. So what happens if they have to roll that debt over? It matures. They have to roll it into new debt with interest rates at a much higher level. That makes perfect sense. Perfect sense is a concern. 
However, the corporate maturity wall is actually not all that large in 2024. So we're looking at numbers like this year, $21 billion of corporate debt to be rolled over. The big jump is actually in 2025. So it goes from $21 billion this year to $609 billion in 2025, and that's investment-grade corporate debt. High yield, much smaller numbers, uh, just comparably, but high yield this year, $7 billion to mature, 2025, $92 billion to mature, 2026, $163 billion to mature. So the corporate maturity wall really begins in earnest in 2025. Companies have been able to push it back here and there. But if that's the case, if we're concerned about it really starting in 2025, rates are likely to be lower by then. This might not be the bigger concern. I think there's likely much more likely to be something that happens on the corporate front if there's bankruptcies or some sort of stress that occurs, whether it be, again, in the regional banking industry, in commercial real estate, something like that. But the maturity wall is is not something that looms this year as a huge concern. Consumer credit card debt. This is something I've talked about a lot uh, in the last six months. We've seen credit card debt since last summer really increase, and it's hit all-time highs on a nominal basis. Now, a couple things. In order for the economy to keep humming, we do need debt. And a lot of times taking on debt is a positive sign. It does drive consumption. It allows consumers to spread out the consumption. It allows them to increase their consumption. And as long as they can make those payments, shouldn't be much of a concern. Now, there's a chart in my outlook about delinquencies that I would encourage all of you to look at as well. Credit card debt has gone up. So have delinquencies, both in credit cards auto loans. You want to watch those types of things going into 2024. Not to mention the buy now, pay later programs that hit records during this holiday shopping season. Now, people might say that's not really a concern. It's just another way of of doing what we've always done. And that may be true. But the question I have is if there's so much cash out there and if the consumer is so strong, why are they buying on credit? Why are they buying on credit cards and on buy now, pay later plans? Unless they're somehow taking that money that they didn't spend immediately and investing it in something that's paying a high interest rate and playing that arbitrage game, which I don't think is the case, uh, there isn't that much incentive to use a buy now, pay later plan and pay that higher rate. So something, something to keep in mind. So in general, we look at all of these. We look at government debt, corporate debt, and consumer debt. Things do feel a bit off kilter and they are increased risks in 2024, then the real question or maybe the follow-on question is, don't falling rates fix that problem, even if those are concerns? If rates fall, doesn't it get to be less of a concern? In some ways, yes, absolutely. As rates fall, corporations refinance at lower rates, treasury interest expense comes down. That is absolutely true. Uh, I think the real concern Again, what I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, if we're only going from five and a half Fed funds rate to four by the end of the year, that's still quite a bit higher than what consumers, corporates uh, have been used to for the last decade or so. So still above where things used to be could put stress on a lot of those sectors. Question number three. As usual, I got a lot of questions on sectors and size categories and parts of the market that I like in 2024, parts of the market that I don't like. Also questions on whether tech can continue to be a winner, whether the NASDAQ can continue to outperform. So I'm going to run through some of those sectors uh, and size categories. I love that so many of you asked about small caps. You know I love talking about small caps. So that's where I think we should start. Small caps are up 
23 to 24% since the October lows. That's not for the full year. That's since the October lows. That is a huge run in a very short period of time. And that's if you look at the Russell 2000 or the S&P 600. The S&P 600 is a little different because it goes through a profitability screen. In any event, both indexes up 23 to 24% since the end of October. So likely to give a little bit back after such a blistering rally. That's only natural, at least in the near term. But if we're talking about the full year of 2024, and I want to be very clear, I'm going to answer this question based on the full year of 2024. So this isn't just for the next couple months. I think a pullback in small caps is a good opportunity to add or initiate if you do not have a position. They may go down before they go up again. If we do actually go through the end of the late cycle of the business cycle, if there is a brief recession, if we begin a recession, or if there's some kind of economic slowdown that gives markets the jitters, small caps do likely get hit, especially after such a big run up. But if we're talking about the full year and if that shakes out the risks, then you've got to think about the other side of it. So coming out of a contraction like that, if there is a real contraction or some type of recession, small caps usually lead. Now, usually it's small cap value in particular that leads. It it could end up being pretty split this time because growth, there's so much appetite for growth stocks, but small caps should lead on the other side of a contraction. So if we're talking about the full year of 2024, if we do get a pullback in small caps early in the year here, I do think it's an opportunity to add or initiate a position. I would do that in the S&P 600 for now. Falling rates should also help small caps, but you want to be careful about some of the companies that might be teetering on the edge of not being able to refinance their debt, things like that. So the S&P 600 with that profitability screen will filter out some of those bigger risks. Likewise, cyclicals. If you think about cyclical sectors, if there is a contraction, if there is a pullback, on the other side of that, cyclicals should lead on the way out. And in particular, I would be favoring financials and industrials. Financials, Really, on, on one hand, if you think about if the yield curve re-steepens, if we do get some rate cuts, you see a yield curve re-steepening, you've got financials that lend long and borrow short. So their profit on the lending maybe goes up or stays steady, but the borrowing that they have to pay out, so they're paying out deposit rates, that pressure might come down. So financials, a yield curve re-steepening should be helpful. Industrials had a really nice end to 2023. So recognizing that they did have a nice rally at the end of the year, but if things do contract and then re-strengthen in 2024, industrials should be a good standout. And then something that doesn't fall necessarily in the cyclical camp or cleanly in the defensive camp is healthcare. I would use healthcare as a laggard play in 2024, in the sense that it did not keep up in 2023. It was pretty lackluster, pretty uninspiring. So as a laggard, as markets do rotate and there's this catch-up trade going on, healthcare can be a real beneficiary. It's also a space where you can find some growth, particularly in pharmaceuticals and biotech and in the small cap space, where it's not as rate sensitive. So it's growth. It's a growthier part of the sector, not as rate sensitive as those growthy areas of tech and consumer discretionary and communications. And then utilities. I've liked utilities for a while. Utilities would work as a dividend play and as a defensive play in 2024. Something to keep in mind if you don't have a position. Uh, they were also a pretty big laggard in 2023. So trading as uh, in the rotation, utilities could come out of that on the upside. And then last but certainly not least in the U.S., treasuries, treasuries, treasuries. We still have 
six-month treasuries, 12-month treasuries trading north of 5%. The two-year has seen a huge rally, but still attractive, I think, if we're considering that rates rate cuts are going to begin in March and continue through the year. So think about those treasury positions. You can still make a pretty penny in the yield, and you probably see a rally in prices if rate cuts do, in fact, occur. Okay, and then shifting over into international just very quickly, emerging markets have an interesting opportunity in 2024 as the dollar falls. So as rate cuts occur, you typically see pressure on the dollar, on the currency of that country. EM is an interesting place, and I would avoid China, at least for the first quarter, while we see how some of this geopolitical tension plays out. But you can easily find EM X China places to invest, and that's something to think about. Metals. Pullbacks in gold here, I think, are an opportunity to add. If you do not have a position in gold, perhaps initiate on any pullbacks. Again, the dollar falling, yields falling, plus the chance of global fear picking up, make gold still a good bet into 2024, despite the strong run that it's had. Uh, I don't see the NASDAQ staying as far ahead this year. I don't see there being such a big divergence in the NASDAQ versus the S&P, especially if some of that rotation trade that started to happen at the end of 2023 holds up. Uh, The NASDAQ, it doesn't mean it's going to do poorly, but I don't see it as the standout performer that it was in 2023. I think it's time for some of the other sectors and the other broader indexes to come off the bench. On to question number four. This one I am asking myself. Many of you asked, are you still bearish? Okay, so admittedly in 2023, I was pretty bearish. Uh, According to the Magnificent Seven and according to the NASDAQ and according to the Dow, I was wrong. (laughs) Many of us were wrong about that particular call, particularly wrong about the economic bearish call. So I did expect that things would have happened much more quickly. Cracks would have formed much more quickly. However, at these levels, and after such a strong rally into the end of 2023, at these levels in a lot of the indexes, I would expect a near-term pullback. Usually you just kind of let some air out of the balloon. But I am not as convinced that there has to be a huge event that makes it all come crashing down. So an event did occur in March of 2023. And that is an event that I think many of us expected to have a much broader reaching effect on markets and on basically just corporations broadly. And it didn't. The system solved it or saved it, perhaps, and sentiment stayed resilient. And I think that was the key. I think many people, self-included, underestimated the strength of investor sentiment and the strength of consumer sentiment in 2023. So don't underestimate this market's ability to explain away some of the warnings until they become pervasive. But that doesn't mean that the warnings are not still there. And I think that's something that we really have to keep in mind. The major warning signs are still there. So it keeps me cautious in the sense of, I am not sold that this is a new bull market and we are off to the races. I think that we still have not seen all of the effects of tightening. We still have not seen the slowdown in growth that the Fed wanted to see in order to be confident that inflation was taken care of. And I think the labor data is really, really important to watch. It has not been affected all that negatively yet, but it could be in 2024. So I do not think we're out of the woods yet, but I I also have reduced the likelihood in my own head that there has to be some catastrophic event, that it has to be this dramatic fashion uh, in which we find that out. It could be just a slow grind lower that doesn't end up 
in catastrophe. So some of the risk factors that are still out there, this is all in the outlook as well. Um, and I would encourage you to look at the charts about this. Rate cuts are actually the risk, not hikes. So during a hiking cycle, markets tend to do okay. It's right around when the Fed starts cutting rates that markets tend to start wavering. And then you typically see a market bottom shortly after cuts either have begun or maybe after the cutting cycle has finished. So if we're starting to cut rates in March and we are doing it at a steady pace through the rest of the year, that's when I think markets will get pretty nervous. Yield curve inversions are not something to ignore. And we've got yield curve inversions across three of the major spots. You've got the twos, tens inverted, the three-month tenure inverted, and what's called the near-term forward spread, which is what the Fed watches, also inverted. So those are things that still nag at me. And then growing debt levels that we've talked about, persistent cumulative inflation pressures that we've talked about on consumers. And then just the question mark of where will earnings and margin expansion come from? in 2024 if GDP growth needs to slow. So right now, earnings expectations are for about 11% growth in 2024, and there are expectations for margin expansion across a lot of corporates. But where will that growth come from if GDP is expected to slow to below trend? Okay, and last but certainly not least, I saved the most burning question for last. A lot of different versions of this. I have money to put to work. Where should I put it? When should I do it? And why, basically? So if you look, again, this chart is in the outlook. If you look at money market balances, they have ballooned for obvious reasons. You could get a money market with little to no risk paying 5.5% for a lot of 2023. People took advantage of that. People took advantage of treasury yields. So we've got a ton of money sitting in treasuries as well. That to a lot of people means that they have money sitting on the sidelines ready to deploy, or maybe they're just ready to invest a large chunk that they've been sort of nervous to invest so far. So how do we do that? When do we do that? Obviously, everybody's time frame is going to be different, so I can't answer this entirely as a blanket statement, but I'll talk through some of the opportunities. I'm sure you can expect some of what I am about to say by what I just talked about with sector and size category opportunities. But here's the thing. If you still have money sitting in a money market, at 5%, not a bad place to be, especially starting a year where we're not certain that the rally from last year is going to persist. So I don't think you need to rush out of money markets. But if rate cuts are going to happen, money market rates are going to come down. So this is something I have not said yet. One of the things that you could consider, if you still want to park money in cash, if you are nervous, you want money in cash, but you want that yield, you could consider starting to shop around for CDs. I know that sounds like the most unsexy answer in the world, but shopping around for CDs where you can lock in a rate for a period of time. So if you're comfortable putting your money somewhere and not having access to it, for however long that CD lasts, then that is an option where you won't be facing the drop in money market rates as Fed funds rates come down. However, that's also not really the base case. I wouldn't say that's my, my top pick for 2024, but that's just an option uh, if you're concerned about money market rates coming down. But long-term investing requires long-term exposure. So let's talk about where to be exposed. I talked about treasuries already. If you don't have money in treasuries, Rates are still high enough that it's a good idea to allocate. And I would focus on the six-month, the 12-month, and the two-year portion of the curve. So think about that uh, as somewhere to find not only good yield, but price opportunity, price appreciation opportunity as rates come down and as we move through 2024. Uh, 
one of the things that I think are is important to keep in mind. We talked about the year-end rally so much, obviously, through the end of 2023. The narrative turned from, we're expecting the year-end rally to persist, which it did, right? Most people did expect the year-end rally to persist and for things to continue going up through the end of the year. But there was a lot of concern discussed about January and February. So then once the end of the year is over, what happens? Do we stop? And just the simple talking about it sometimes brings it down in the sense of, if we think everybody else is worried about a pullback in January, then you want to protect your own portfolio and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I would keep that in mind for the beginning of this year that we had such a strong rally through the end of last year, probably going to give a little back or at least slow down in January just to sort of get our bearings about us. But even if the rally conks out in January and there's a pullback, I think it's an opportunity in some places whether you don't have an allocation, then it's an opportunity to initiate or an opportunity to add. Now, I would not do all of this in the first couple months of the year. Always try to average in. So if we're looking at January as a pullback or February as a pullback, I think the opportunities to add would be in things like small caps. I think financials, industrials, healthcare, and utilities, also good opportunities. We talked about EMX China as a good opportunity. Dividend stocks. Now, utilities kind of solve that, but dividend stocks, you can buy a lot of dividend ETFs. As yields come down and investors are still looking to produce yield, whether from bonds or from equities, dividend stocks might see a nice resurgence in 2024. So an allocation to Divi stocks uh, here makes a lot of sense to me. And then an equal weight S&P allocation, because we saw such a bifurcation of large cap versus small cap in 2023, and that catch-up trade is underway, you want to be exposed to the stuff that still has catching up to do, rather than the stuff that has seen such a big run. Uh, especially if we really are late in the economic cycle. You typically do see large caps out, outperform small caps late in the cycle. But if that cycle turns, you see that flip as well. So making sure that you have an allocation across the broad index. A lot of people are calling it the S&P 493. Uh, since you can't actually buy that, think about an equal weighted S&P instead. Okay, so that wraps up the Q&A. I couldn't get to everybody's questions, but I got to, I think, as many as I could and covered them as broadly as I could in those topics. Thank you again for all of your participation. And we look forward to releasing a Outlook episode towards the end of the month. And that will kick off our regular season of The Important Part Podcast. Thanks again for listening. And here's to a great 2024. For more from me, read my weekly column every Thursday on the SoFi blog or follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Liz Youngstrat. Tune in to the SoFi Daily podcast for five-minute daily episodes covering the top business, economic, and stock market news you need to start your day. The SoFi Daily pod is available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out the SoFi Daily newsletter. You can sign up for the SoFi Daily to receive the latest financial news in your inbox every day. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Carter Wogan, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. 
This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth LLC and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com slash legal. 